Have you ever wanted to have an intimate conversation about the state of the nursing profession with the president of the American Nurses Association? Well, you're in the right place as we celebrate the end of Nurses Week 2019 and speak with Dr. Ernest Grant, the first man in history to be elected ANA president. So let's celebrate nursing and Dr. Grant right here on episode 209 of the Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. I am so grateful you're listening, whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me for months or years here on the airwaves. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, inspiration, and ideas that can get you moving in a positive and a very inspired direction. And with Nurses Week 2019 behind us, we are wrapping up with one of the most publicly visible and amazing nurses in the United States and beyond, the president of the American Nurses Association. Meanwhile, if you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, you can follow along over at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 209. And Dr. Ernest Grant, current president of the American Nurses Association, welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. Thank you for having me, Keith. It is such an honor to have you here. And first, I just have to say congratulations on being elected the president of the ANA. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to have that honor. Yeah, it's just, it's an incredible thing for nursing. And actually, I have to just point out that you are the first male president of the ANA, correct? That is correct. And uh, the organization has been around 123 years. And uh, I am the, the first. Uh, male elected to that position. Wow. Well, thank you for representing. <laughs> and my understanding then, if you're the first male, I just have to point out you're also now the first African-American male president of the ANA. Uh, that is correct as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you have um, broken a couple different barriers here. We don't have to call them barriers, but it's a nice change. And I want to ask you first, what would be your state of the profession statement? If you were going to say where we are right now in a nutshell, where do you think the nursing profession has found itself in 2019? I think in present day 2019, the nursing profession finds itself challenged. And when I use that word, I'm not meaning in a negative way. I think uh, we are challenged in the fact that nurses are wanting to be uh, more elaborate uh, about uh, you know who they are as nurses and what we do and that means taking on more of a an advocacy role not just uh, necessarily when you're at the bedside with the patient but also more of an advocacy role out in the community you know we are part of the community and as i'm sure a lot of your listeners know we for the 17th year in a row we've been uh, selected by uh, the gallup poll as the most trusted profession but being part of the community means that we are, you know, we live in the community. We're also advocates of the community and can, uh, we're finding our voice to, you know, take down those social determinants of health uh, as best as we can as they may happen within the community. So that's part of the challenge that I see that we are faced with as, uh, as nurses right now. 
Well said. And I want to point out that from the point of view of advocacy, a lot of nurses and state and local nursing associations are quite active in the political arena. I'm on the board of the New Mexico Nurses Association, which is part of the ANA. And we do a lot of advocacy with our government relations committee. So are you seeing a lot of nurses having a lot more interest in the political landscape, especially vis-a-vis healthcare? Definitely so, um, from many different factors. And, and one of the platforms that I ran on was to engage nurses more in the, uh, the political arena. I think nurses need to realize that decisions that are made either here in the D.C. area or at their state level or at their local uh, regional level will in some way or another affect their ability to practice, whether they're an advanced practice uh, nurse or not. It's either going to you know, limit their you know, what they can and cannot do. It may limit access that those that we care for may have. Uh, so again, that is uh, you know, has a uh, effect on on that as well. And you know, again, nurses just need to be more politically savvy. And I encourage them to go to town hall meetings and uh, talk to the politicians and say, "Do you realize that?" you know, the decision that you're making, you know, this is where it ends. This is the result of that particular decision. You may not have thought that through very clearly, or, you know, we're proud that you are, you know, doing something that is going to be or create more of an advantage to uh, people within the community and those that we serve. Um, And then also the possibility of serving as a, you know, healthcare consultant for a lot of politicians. You know, we are, uh, be healthcare experts. We, you know, we, we know what uh, what may be going on, and a lot of times the politicians may not uh, be aware of that. So, being able to really tell them the truth about things, and uh, as opposed to what they may hear from, you know, some of their other supporters, it sort of, you know, provides that way for uh, for nurses to continue to be the most trusted profession. That's a great point. And I just want to bring up the fact that we do have several nurses in elected office in mm-hmm. Congress, the Senate, I believe there might be one in the Senate, <laughs> and also yes. in state legislatures. And mm-hmm. like here in New Mexico, we recently had changes to the Nurse Practice Act go to the legislature during our legislative session. And there was a lot of lobbying that had to happen to make sure that other organizations and groups didn't strip us of any of the gains that we've earned over the last decades. So I'm sure you're seeing that all over the country right now at the national and the state and local level. Uh, Absolutely. And ANA is, is working very, very hard uh, not only behind the scenes, but with the various uh, constituent and state nurses associations to ensure that uh, where that legislation may be pending, that uh, they get the best representation, the best opportunities to have those uh, those pieces of legislation sail through. Uh, one of the main reasons, obviously, is that obviously there's a physician shortage in underserved areas, and it's the advanced practice nurse who wants to serve or can help you know, to alleviate those shortages. So who better than uh, someone who knows the community, who has developed a lot of the, the resources over his or her nursing career, either, you know, when they were working as a staff nurse or before they decided to go back for, you know, for the advanced degree. But uh, during that time, they developed a lot of resources, a lot of friendships with people in other areas of the healthcare team 
And they can apply that in their settings when they go and work in those underserved community areas. That's right. And I just have to ask you this question. So when will you run for Congress or Senate? <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish my term as president of ANA first. Oh, when, we'll, does, we'll talk. when does that term end, by the way? How many years do you serve as president? It is a two-year term, and actually you can succeed yourself once. So uh, right now I'm, I'm just five months into this, so I want to get through that first before making the decision as to whether or not I want to uh, have a second term. Okay. Well, if you need people to work on your campaign for Congress, just just let me know. I can put the word out. We will get an APB on nurses who want to support you. <laughs> Thank you. I really um, appreciate it. Sure. And, and speaking of running for office... How can we convince more nurses to run for local, state, and national office? And I mean school board, city council, mayor, Congress, state senate. What do we do to galvanize the nursing community to realize that they can have a voice at that particular level? Keith, I am so glad that you asked that question. Um, Thank you. And and there are two different ways that I'd like to approach that. Okay. Number one as a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with, uh, there is a campaign that ANA has uh, that a lot of state nurses association and other organizations have taken on, which is called Nurse on Boards or Nurses on Boards campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, I always like to use uh, a favorite saying that one of my nearest and dearest friends who was uh, a lobbyist for the North Carolina Nurses Association, uh, she used to say, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. And Absolutely. That's, that is certainly true. So, you know, so as you know, our goal is to get, um, I believe it was 10,000 nurses on, uh, you know, boards by, uh, you know, by 2020. And we're having very much success with that. Uh, one of the things, though, that I think nurses need to realize is that we're automatically leaders. Uh, I go back to, and this is the second part, I go back to the fact that I said that we're in the communities. Well, buying in the community, you are part of that. You just don't live there. And as a nurse, you're there as a as a mother, as a father. So what happens to your children or what happens you know, within the community is also going to affect you. So it's only natural that we would set up and, you know, uh, talk to people within the community about, you know, let's uh, talk to the city council and why aren't we getting you know, uh, you know, proper water here, or what are we doing about these food deserts? Or when it comes to, you know, potentially running for the school board, you know, you're active in, uh, you know, the PTA. So, you know, it's just one more step. So you're already doing that. Uh, but it's a matter of, you know, uh, really recognizing that, you know, you have those leadership skills that are, that are needed. I think uh, one of the other things that's important for nurses to, uh, to, to realize is that obviously we just, you know, we automatically sort of migrate to those leaderships. When we see that things need to be done, we don't sit back and wait on somebody else to do it. We're going to do it ourselves. So right. it's just a matter of that nurse, uh, you know, feeling confident and comfortable with themselves to say, hey, that's not right. I need to, you know, to, to step up and have my voice heard. Exactly. And if a nurse says to me or you, for instance, oh my gosh, I can't run for office. I have no political experience. You can say, well, let's take, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a 28-year-old bartender, waitress, and community organizer who is now a member of Congress and is really forcing some change to happen in that 
venerable and older institution. <laughs> so we we have entered a new world in the 21st century where political experience doesn't necessarily translate to the only thing that can bring one into an office where one can affect change. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, just the example that you gave, the, the mere fact that Ms. Cortez is young, today's voters or, you know, the millennials, this is, uh, you know, she identifies with them. Right. Uh, and uh, that's a huge and important factor that someone that may be considering either going into politics or going into public service or serving on the board uh, you know, you want those fresh new ideas. And I'm not saying for for my generations, I'm, you know, I'm right in the middle of the baby boomers, but for, <laughs> uh, for my generations, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we step aside, but we need to be open to, you know, to letting in the, the next generation and doing whatever we can, what we have learned as leaders, you know, mentor those individuals, but also be open to their ideas for uh, for change or, you know, there's more than one way to achieve something. And if a uh, millennial can come along where something is smarter, you know, quicker, more efficient, and et cetera, than the ways that my generation perhaps would have done that, the whole idea is that in the end, you get the same result. Uh, it doesn't matter how you got there. It's a matter of whether you, uh, you know, how you, you know, how you, you got there. So if a millennial can do something a, a little bit, uh, you know, savvier and more efficiently, then, you know, that's fine. The, as long as we all benefit in the end. That's right. All the power to them, right? And Absolutely. I'm glad you made the jump from Ms. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to the millennial generation, because I have a bee in my bonnet about the millennial generation. So, you know, it's very common for the older generation who's you know, kind of aging out. They're in the autumn of their lives, let's say, and to disparage the younger generations, for instance, even though the younger generations aren't responsible for how they were raised, uh, they, they received the parenting that they received in the society into which they were born. So I personally see the millennial generation as an amazing change agent, like a, a collective change agent. And there's this savviness, this this openness to different ways of living, different ways of loving, different family structures, and ways of looking at the world that I think are very exciting. So I'm particularly enthused about the millennial generation. So are you seeing, or actually, what are you seeing in terms of millennial nurses beginning to assume positions of influence? Because they are the new leaders, and they're the largest segment of the workforce now. So are you noticing some some sea changes that are starting to happen, generationally speaking? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I, I am. And uh, again, that may come on two fronts. One, yeah. we know that in dealing with this population, they tend not to be joiners. So for associations such as uh, ANA and other you know healthcare organizations, that is, you know, that's a, a well, it's not really a problem, but it's a it's a challenge that we need to you know to figure out how to get those individuals to you know to join associations and bring in their talents and their ideas and you know continue to bear the torch for the profession, if you will. Exactly. The uh, the other component of that, uh, what I am seeing is that yes, they are more open because of the way that they were brought up. And, you know, one of the platforms that I ran on 
was to increase the diversity within the profession across the gender, the race, ethnicity, creed, what other characteristics that uh, you know people should be. I, I firmly believe that nursing should be representative of those that we care for. So you're dealing with a generation of people who grew up, you know, seeing that uh, someone who may be who may be gay or you know or LGBT or transgendered or you know, from a different culture, they have been open and accepting of that individual for who they are. You know, they don't question or they don't uh, necessarily you know have opposite or or opposed thinking. They are sort of the live and let live, if you will, uh-huh. um, generation, uh-huh. which I, I think is uh, is a great way to be. And uh, and as we begin to see, you know, as they begin to ascend to positions of power, if you will, or leadership, uh, you know, they're keeping that mentality with them because that's it's it's been embedded in them from the time they first started interacting, maybe in, in kindergarten or in pre-K uh, all the way through their, their lives. So they, they do not know of any other way to be thinking, which I think is a, a very big plus, you know, because they are more open and accepting of, of uh, who we are. And of course, as nurses, we're that way anyway. We, you know, we never know that, you know, the person that we're caring for in that bed, you know, could be someone who has, totally different ideas than what we have, but we know that they are in need of a service that we can provide. And while they are uh, in our care, we're going to not be judgmental of that individual, but uh, we're going to provide them with the best care that we can, as we would the same person in you know the, the room next door or the room on down the street or uh, not down the street, on down the hall or, right. or whatever. So, so I, I think uh, as a result of all that, we're, we are seeing a, a huge change in the, the way, um, you know, either political issues or social issues or healthcare issues are going to be approached. Right. And that just brings me such hope for these next decades coming, even with climate change and everything else that's happening and mass extinction of creatures all over the world, there's still some positive things happen. And I try to make sure I stay focused on some of those positive things and bring those to the attention of people in my audience, because there's, there's plenty to be upset about. And there's also plenty to be hopeful about. So we really have to strike that balance these days, don't we? Absolutely. And if I may add these, these individuals, they tend to be very resourceful as well, even though Mm -hmm. they may not be joiners, as I pointed out, but they do, they use social media and et cetera to help get their points across as well. You know, when you can do like a GoFundMe page or you send out a, a tweet or or uh, put something on, on Facebook, uh, you know, that addresses a concern that they may have uh, because of the followers and things that they may have along with that, uh, you know, they're still getting their message out there. They're still being, you know, community leaders and et cetera. They're just doing it in a different fashion uh, or a different way than those of my generation may be used to doing. I mean, even, you know, take, for example, your your podcast, you know, mm-hmm. think of all the followers that you have. But, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, who would have thought that <laughs> you know, <laughs> a nurse in New Mexico would be, you know, having, uh, you know, conversations like this or being able to, uh, explore what is going on in nursing, you know, normally with something like that, you would have read it in a journal, you know, or a magazine. Uh, but now we can, you know, we can get that through social media, which works very, very, very nicely. 
That's so true. And this podcast does reach nurses on six continents. I just can't break into Antarctica. It's a tough crowd. But I do have listeners in Japan and China and France and South Africa. You know, most of them are here in the United States, but people are hearing the message. And I do hear from people around the world, which is really lovely. And before we take a break, I just want to say to the nurse out there listening, thinking, where did Dr. Grant come from? You know, where where did he emerge from? And I just want to say that you've been a nurse for over 30 years. You're an internationally recognized burn care and fire safety expert, and you have really taken part in an amazing array of clinical work in relation to burn education. You've worked with the US military, preparing troops for Iraq and Afghanistan. You have done so many incredible things. You're even adjunct faculty for UNC Chapel Hill School of Nursing. And you work, I believe, with undergrads and grads, right? Graduate students? Yeah. And do you work in the clinical setting and the classroom, or do you tend to spend more time in one or the other at this juncture? Uh, it's it's a little bit of both, actually. It, it depends on the, the student. If it is a undergrad, then it's mostly in the clinical setting. If it is a graduate student, it's more of a mentorship type thing, but hmm. uh, uh, but uh, or serving on like a dissertation committee or uh, doing some you know, some lectures on health policy. I see. Type. Right. Well, they are lucky to have you as a mentor. And when we come back from the break. We're going to talk more about your history and your past, and also some of your prognostications for the coming years. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. So don't touch that dial. We will be right back. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty nifty premiums and gifts directly from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message just for you. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, even if they do one session, you'll receive credit for one hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. And you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. Remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits over time. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. And we're back here on episode 209 of The Nurse Keith Show. Thanks for hanging out with me here with Dr. Ernest Grant, the current president of the American Nurses Association. It is an incredible honor to have you here, Dr. Grant. Thanks for being with us here for the second half of the show. 
My pleasure. Jan, right before the break, we were talking about millennials and waxing poetic about all the amazing things they're doing and that they're going to do. And I just want to continue talking about you a little bit because your history is impressive. That's uh, that's an understatement. But in 2002, President George W. Bush presented you with Nurse of the Year Award for your work treating burn victims from the World Trade Center site. And in 2013, you received the B.T. Fowler Lifetime Achievement Award from the North Carolina Fire and Safety Education Council for working with the state on the devastating effects of fire and burn injuries and death. You've also been on the North Carolina Nurse Association as president. You've received so many awards. You have earned your MSN and your PhD. And what would you say about your work in the burn and trauma and fire area in terms of safety and burn treatment? What have you learned? What are some of the lessons in your life from that work that you've done? Well, I've, I've learned uh, a lot of lessons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. The, the, uh, the first thing is um, I love the work that I did when I, I worked for the Burn Center. Obviously, I, you know, uh, I'm not doing that now because mm-hmm. the role president is a full-time you know, position. Uh, but one of the things I would always uh, – it, it was quite a challenge, and I love challenges. And as I would tell students, everything I learned in nursing school, and I do mean everything mm-hmm. that I learned in nursing school, I got to apply in that particular setting. Uh, because the youngest patient I had the honor of, of taking care of was a week old. A and week the old? Was, yeah. Yes. And the oldest was 104. So wow. uh, obviously, you you know, you have to be well-versed in the care of, uh, uh, of the two different populations and those in between. Our patients frequently had other comorbidities uh, in addition to their burns. Um, there was the psychosocial component. There's uh, the family dynamics. There's the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dealing with um, someone from a different culture that uh, perhaps this may be their first time being hospitalized or uh, perhaps uh, did not want, uh, you know, a male taking care of a, you know, a female patient. Sure, you know, uh, sure. Yeah. You know, that type thing, which we all have encountered, but we we work our way around this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly, uh, I would always ask myself at the end of the day, did I make a difference? And uh, 99.9% of the time, I could truthfully answer that question with a yes. Wow. So that's one of the things that I learned is that um, uh, the reason I went into the profession was to obviously help my fellow man. And by asking that question every day, that's one thing that I learned was that I did choose the right profession. I have never regretted choosing nursing as a uh, as a career, and that just reemphasized that. Nor have I re- ever regretted it. Twenty three years in, so I'm I'm totally with you on that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess the the other thing that I've learned is that you know people are are very interesting uh, in that uh, you know obviously. I use the um, the phrase, the best way to treat a burn is to prevent it from occurring in the first place. And I had the honor and pleasure of, of uh, overseeing the Burn Center's prevention program, which actually became a national and international model. And so the, the way that I would approach fire and burn and life safety education to people from different cultures and to uh, try to get them to to understand that it only takes just a second, even though it's something you may have done, you know, 101 times before, you know, conditions could be right that now this 102nd time, 
you know, you may have resulted in a, a, a burn. So, um, so the challenge there, or, or the thing that you learn there is to try to get people to see that, you know, we are all vulnerable, you know, but, uh, you know, so we really need to live and breathe safety, uh, like mm-hmm. I do every day. So. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's plenty of insults out there in the world for our very vulnerable human bodies, if, if they can access us. So we do have to be safety advocates. And on that note, if a nurse out there who's listening wants to get involved, and it doesn't have to be burns, it could be healthcare for the homeless, it could be, it could be anything really, what would you recommend that they do if they feel like, hmm, I want to serve my community, I don't really want to run for elected office at this point in my life, even though Nurse Keith tells me I'm supposed to, what can I do or how do I figure out how to serve my community more? What would you tell that person asking that question? Oh, I, I think the first thing that I would tell them is to get yourself a mentor or a mentee, you know, someone who you admire, someone who, and they may not necessarily have to have the nursing background, but, okay. uh, but they can, you know, talk you through things that they may have experiences, uh, experienced or their life experiences and, uh, you know, give you an idea of, you know, what you may be in for and how much of a challenge it may be, because we all think that we may have an idea that, uh, sure, serving at a homeless shelter, um, you know, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to, you know, maybe uh, help serve food or, you know, check their blood pressure or, you know, talk to them about, uh, you know, health-related issues and things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but sometimes you can become disillusioned when you realize that, yes, you've talked to them about that, but you know, but they haven't, you know, why haven't you taken that pill that's going to help to lower your blood pressure right. or, you know, or yeah. why haven't you taken a bath, which would make your, you know, if you've got a wound, mm-hmm. you know, the possibility that, that wound will, will heal much faster. So you may become disillusioned because they're not going to necessarily follow what we would like for them to do, but you have to meet them where they are. And sometimes that means understanding that, uh, that person may have other things on their mind that they view as more important than uh, perhaps their health. Maybe it's another family member that mm-hmm. may be there. And until you actually sit down and listen to them and hear what they have to say or understand that individual, you know, uh, that's going to be the way that you're going to make inroads and get them to uh, to do what we would like for them to do. And that is, you know, uh, you know provide better care for themselves. So do not go in there with the expectation that, uh, you know, you're going to be the one changing the world and, you know, the hour or two or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or so that you you may plan to, uh, to, to be there. It is a long, slow, arduous process, but uh, you do make a difference incrementally. Mm-hmm. And again, after you've done that, ask yourself that same question that I asked myself, did I make a difference today? Right. And as you reflect back on that, you may see that, yes, it was a small difference, but, uh, but at least if this person understands that, I've got type two diabetes, so I can't be eating, uh, you know, a lot of carbs. And, you know, when you try to explain to them what carbs are and et cetera, it could be uh, a matter of their understanding choices or food choices, mm-hmm. you know, instead of eating those potato chips or e- eating uh, uh, sweets and et cetera, that maybe a better choice would be, you know, uh, you know some other food selection. That's making a difference. That's getting them to think about, uh, you know, better health. Even though, you know, it would be more 
um, they probably do want to gravitate to those, you know, to that bag of potato chips. And uh, yes. That's true. And I'm glad you brought up this notion of incrementalism, if I can use that word, if it even exists, I'll have to look it up. Um, If not, um, I just coined it. So in incrementalism, we think about this when we serve our communities, or we try to make political change, or we run for office and don't get elected the first time. We are making slow dents, right? We're making slow inroads. And that traumatized homeless person whose history is probably more voluminous than we can ever imagine. And there's so much going on in their mind and their psyche and their heart in that moment. If we just show curiosity and listen and follow that adage that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, we listen twice as much as we talk. And if we can listen to those people and even just lend them an ear or a shoulder, we don't know the repercussions that our listening so avidly and compassionately might have. And do you see that that gift of listening and intellectual and emotional curiosity as something that nurses can really activate in various ways? Um, absolutely. I, I think as nurses, that's that's one of the things that we're great at is listening because we are with the patient 24-7 mm-hmm. in the acute care setting. Uh, we we can understand that uh, you know once we have gained that person's trust you know obviously in some cases it may take you know a, a while to to do that but when you begin to see that you know they're not acting as normal as they do or when you feel that you can uh, get them to open up and say you know you seem to be a little you know not yourself or something seems to be wearing you or whatever right that's that invitation there whereas uh, obviously our not only physician colleagues, but even, you know, our uh, advanced practice uh, nurses, you know, we know that they have a limited amount of time that they can spend with an individual because of, you know, they have to go to the next individual. But for the nurse who is going to be there 24-7, that's going to be the one that that patient is going to to trust. And as you listen to them, uh, the next time that, uh, you know, they are rounding, and you can say, you know, I think you need to explain to Mrs. Jones again this procedure we're going to do. You mm-hmm. know, I have talked with her yesterday, and you know, she uh, doesn't seem to, you know, quite understand that. And you also have to understand this is where cultural competency comes in as well, because there are some in some cultures, it's you know, it's just considered, um, you know, rude, if you will, to uh, you know, to to feel that you can question someone that may be viewed in authority. You know, uh, or, yes. Yes. Or that, you know, or, or maybe they they think, well, you're wearing the white coats, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, uh, you know, what you say must be, you know, must be the truth. And I'm in your hands. That, yeah. Hey, can I ask for a second opinion or can you, you know, restate that to where I can understand that? Uh, and sometimes they're afraid to do that. So by listening as nurses, we're able to, you know, we're not afraid. Did you understand what was just said to you? And if not, then obviously it's our responsibility and accountability to make sure that uh, we go to the team and say, you know, Mrs. Smith didn't understand what you just said. Maybe mm-hmm. you need to go in and uh, talk to her again, or maybe get an interpreter who can, you know, uh, interpret things, uh, you know, if they're from a different culture, who can uh, interpret it in the, uh, the culture that, uh, you know, that he or she may be able to, to comprehend what we're trying to say. Right. Absolutely. And that ability to listen 
it comes from, in my world, from the development of emotional intelligence, behavioral intelligence, and relational intelligence. And that's why I talk about it so much. <laughs> and um, you're obviously someone who lives and breathes that level, of, that type of intelligence. So I, I really see that and want to honor that in you. And we're going to take a quick, sharp turn. And I wanted to ask you a few questions just about the profession itself. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. Great. So in terms of shortages, and we do have shortages in different parts of the country at different times, right? So we know we have a shortage of primary care physicians in vulnerable areas, underserved areas. So we, that's a given. What can nurses and stakeholders do in terms of preparing for or even maybe preventing shortages of nursing nurses? What is What are some of the actions we can actually take as individuals or organizations or groups? Oh, there's uh, there's so many. Uh, okay, just go for uh, it. <laughs> well, it. It starts, uh, I think, by going into the schools, uh, particularly at the elementary level. Okay. And uh, being the role model, uh, you know, myself, uh, you know, as you mentioned to your, your listeners, I'm I'm an African-American male, but what you don't know is that I am also six foot, six inches tall. All right. So I have a, <laughs> a very imposing presence, uh, but I, I know that I can go into, you know, if I go into an elementary school and uh, can talk to, you know, young children and who knows, there may be, uh, you know, a, a young African-American you know, boy that is there or, you know, or someone from another uh, ethnic background mm -hmm. uh, that can say, well, if he can do it, so can I. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and uh, so you, you set yourself up as a, as a role model and, uh, and of course, let them know that obviously the uh, adhering to the STEM courses, you know, making sure you're getting the science and, mm -hmm. you know, the mathematics and, you know, things of that sort, the strong courses that it's going to need to, to uh, be a nurse. Uh, that's, one thing that uh, we will be able to do. And of course, uh, as salaries are coming up, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's a very highly competitive uh, profession. Uh, and, and that's another thing is to, to see nurse as a nursing as a profession and not as a trade as it was back, you know, some 40, 50 years ago or thought of as, uh, you know, as that. It is an art and it is a profession. We are, you know, we do have evidence-based practice. We do research. We, you know, uh, all the things that that is used to define what a profession is, nursing has that. And uh, so it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, nurses being more active and having their voices heard to where people will understand that, you know, we're there from the beginning of life to the end of life. And, you know, some of the ways that we can try to help this shortage, if you will, is to recruit more uh, more people from diverse backgrounds. Yes. Uh, and also, you know, just make nursing itself more appealing, you know, by letting people know that, you know, it is a profession where you can earn a very good living and you do not necessarily have to be at the, uh, the, the, the bedside. You know, nursing is everywhere. As I mentioned, we're out in the community. You could be doing, uh, you know, home health nursing. You could be doing travel nursing. You mm -hmm. could... Uh, uh, be doing uh, innovations with uh, technology and et cetera, or working with folks in uh, Silicon Valley. So, right. Robotics uh, and artificial intelligence. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so there's lots of areas that uh, people can, uh, you know, can go to and uh, still 
you know, still be a nurse and still make a difference in the lives sure. of people. Sure. And then there's entrepreneurship. I'm on the board of the National Nurses in Business Association, and we help grow nurse entrepreneurs. And I consider myself a real nurse, and I work at home in my pajamas half the time. <laughs> I could be wearing them now. Nobody yes. knows. Yes. So um, I'm a pajamapreneur, and I still consider myself a nurse. And it's it's wonderful to have that option. It's only been a few years for me, but the possibilities are endless. It, it's kind of like that Dr. Seuss book back in the day for adults called Oh, the Places You'll Go. It's actually very true. And we need a Dr. Seuss book for nurses, but I'll work. That's another conversation. Well, um, something you and I going together. All right. We'll talk about that offline. Now, speaking of the public and the perception of nursing and wanting to influence children and all these other sorts of things, we have had periodically something happens that blows up on the internet because someone disparages nursing or nurses. So several years ago, we had Joy Bahar, one of the hosts on The View morning talk show, poke fun at a nurse who was in a beauty contest and she did her, it was the, the, what would you call it? The talent show part of the beauty pageant. And she came out in scrubs and talked about her work as a nurse. And she was wearing a stethoscope. And when Joy Bahar said, what is she doing wearing a doctor's stethoscope? Everything exploded. And one of the positives that came out of that was show me your stethoscope. This nonprofit organization that now advocates for nurses and their their presence in the in the community and in the country. However, we also often have a shrill uh, response to these things. Like State Senator Maureen Walsh in Washington State recently said that nurses have time to play cards all day, and that exploded. And internet memes are great. I created a few myself on Instagram because it was funny and it was thought provoking, but there's more we need to do when something like this happens. And what would you say the opportunity is when something is said about nursing or nurses or the profession and we want to respond? What, what are the most practical and affecting responses to such incidents? Well, um, if you take the the incident with uh, Senator Walsh, she um, <laughs> I, I think if you asked her about three days later, she uh, well, she definitely said she regretted making that statement. Oh yes, but it was because she had gotten well over a million emails, comments, and et cetera, you know, about you know disparaging nurses and how you don't do that. Mm -hmm. And they did not all all come from nurses. They came from doctors. They came yes. from other members of the healthcare team. They came from you know, just the general public. Uh, again, it goes back to, uh, as I stated at the beginning, we're the most trusted profession. So when incidents like that happen, you you spin it to where, uh, you know, you shed good light on it. Uh, you know, the public understands that uh, the nurses, uh, you know, we are there to to advocate on their behalf or to protect them. And it's almost like a family, you know, uh, if that was a disparaging remark made against one of your family members, you're naturally going to, you know, want to defend them. Absolutely. And I think that's yeah. the way it is with, uh, you know, nurses view from the, uh, the, the public is that, uh, you know, no, you don't pick on this nurse because, you know, they held my hand during this procedure, or they can all, uh, you know, think about an incident in which a nurse uh, was there for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember where it was that I read it, but on average, the uh, the average person 
may have an encounter with a nurse at least seven times in their life, sometimes even more. But uh, again, it's, it goes back to we're there at the beginning. You know, it was a nurse who, you know, who wrapped you in the blanket and you know, started doing <laughs> your physical exam, and right. et cetera. Yeah. Maybe a nurse midwife who delivered you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a nurse who's usually there, you know, when you transition to the, the next life. You know, yes. We're there, you know, with your family or we are, we're all firm believers that no one should die alone. And, you know, we're there at your, your bedside. I mean, I've spent a number of, uh, of, uh, extra times on my shift when my, uh, my shift was over, but because a patient was dying and a family member wasn't there, you know, I just had this general rule that no one should die alone and oh. would be there with that individual as they transition and mm-hmm. then help to, you know, to do the more care that was necessary. So, uh, I think the public knows that and appreciates that. And, uh, so when uh, people who are uninformed about who we are and what we do, you know, they are challenged. And as uh, the senator was challenged, you know, come shadow a nurse for 12 hours if you think we sat around and play cards. And uh, yes. you know, let's see how you know, how you feel at the end of that uh, that 12 hour shift. Yeah. And how, how much your feet hurt <laughs> and, yes. your, and how much your brain feels like it's yes. about to explode. Right. And so these are teaching moments and there's a book I love. It's called from silence to voice, what nurses know and need to communicate to the public. And it's by Bernice Buresh and the journalist, Suzanne Gordon. And it is an incredible book about how nurses can go about getting in front of the public and the media to talk about our profession and how important it is. And are you, as a public figure, as a public nurse, do you feel like you're now a person, a figurehead, so to speak, a representative who is now in the metaphorical Rolodex of various media outlets? Because we want nurses to have a voice. Doctors shouldn't be the only ones called when something happens. So are you now one of those people who say the Washington Post might call when something occurs out there in the world? Absolutely. And uh, not only the Washington Post, but, you know, I, uh, I will be preparing for, you know, testimony on Capitol Hill before, mm. you know, some of the Senate and House committees as uh, healthcare legislation you know, begins to, to work its way to, uh, through various things. Uh, I have been quoted in uh, a number of uh, proposed legislation as uh, ANA has supported, uh, you know, various things or maybe has, uh, has not supported things. But but yes, I, I do view myself as one of the spokesperson um, as it comes to uh, to nursing and or healthcare related issues that will concern those that we care for. And so, uh, so by all means, yes, that is something that uh, I, I view myself in very ready, willing, and able to uh, you know to to speak to such issues. Yeah, and thank you for doing that. And. A nurse out there, let's say in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is listening right now, and he's thinking, you know, I don't have access to testify before Congress. The Washington Post or New York Times isn't going to call me. However, what I say to that nurse is you can go to your local newspaper and say, hey, when stuff happens in healthcare, give me a ring. I'd love to give you a quote or give you my take on it. Or if you'd like me to be a consultant on healthcare stories please come to me? Or would you like me to write a column on healthcare from the perspective of a nurse? So do you encourage nurses to do that kind of outreach to the media and say, hey, I'm here and raise your hands and say, please call on me when you need me? 
Uh, yes, we do. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, one of the other things they could do is, is do an editorial. Um, yes. That's uh, certainly uh, something they could do as well. And also, what I would strongly encourage them to do is, if they're considering that, is to check with their state uh, nurses association to see where their opinions may may lie, uh, mm-hmm. if there's a difference or, or whatever. Because again, if their opinion is different than that of the state nurses association, uh, you know, they would need to you know, well, they should specify anyway. I'm only speaking for myself as, uh, you know, this lone nurse out here in, uh, you know, in Oklahoma. But, you know, this is my opinion. But if it is an opinion that is in line with the State Nurses Association, uh, then they can join their resources together. Perhaps they can get a little bit more facts that uh, they may not be aware of, that the uh, State Nurses Association would be aware of that would make their you know, their editorial or their presentation, you know, so to speak, a little bit more effective by arming them with uh, facts and data that they may not have ready access to. Yes, yes, that's a wonderful point. And speaking of positions, I just, I need to ask this question. And I want to ask about the ANA's position on mandating nurse-patient ratios, because I hear all sorts of opinions and things on this. And of course, it's happening legislatively, nationally, and also in various states around the country. And some people say, oh, the ANA is in bed with the American Hospital Association, and they're not supportive of nurse-patient ratios. What is the true position? And what do you think about this staffing issue that is so ubiquitous right now? And there are so many different ideas for how to resolve it. What would you say to those nurses who just don't know what to think about this issue anymore? Well, first of all, I would uh, would say that ANA does recognize that uh, there is a need for nurse-patient ratios, mm-hmm. uh, but we have long maintained that in order for that to happen, it should happen at the the unit level with nurses who are actually there. It's almost like, you know, if you take the phrase "ask the end user mm-hmm. what is going to be best for them," as opposed to having you know, state laws that would just automatically mandate this nurse-patient ratio, you need to take into consideration, you know, how busy the unit may be, the amount of experience that, uh, you know, the nurses on the unit may have. You may Mm -hmm. have one charge nurse who's got four years experience, but, uh, you know, there may be four or five other nurses who've been there for a year or less. Yes. Uh, You know, that can, you know, those are things that need to be taken into consideration that sometimes some of the laws that are being proposed at the state level does not uh, necessarily, uh, you know, do that. Now, that being said, ANA is, um, you know, uh, we have convened a group that is going to be studying this. We have also uh, inviting in the uh, National Labor uh, Relations in order to ensure that, you know, we're getting numbers and, you know, guidelines and, you know, things of that sort. So uh, we're not shying away from this issue. We we do recognize that uh, there is uh, a, a need for that. But uh-huh. uh, again, as I stated, we advocate, though, that it happens between the employer and uh, nurses at the unit level. But, and, of course, the... The big thing in both of those, either in state-mandated uh, nurse-patient ratios or whatever, it's amount of the enforcement. You know, having you know either legislation that may have some teeth that could say, when this is being violated, you're not just going to get a slap on the wrist. We really mean business or yes. or things of this sort. So, you know, by what we encourage is that you know either the hospital 
know, governance committee, which is something that is, you know, nurse driven, that uh, when they say to administration, yes, we have these, uh, you know, this in, in place, but because of uh, do we have enough strength, so to speak, to or teeth to, uh, you know, to say when we make a complaint that, you know, we're not following the guidelines that we all agreed upon, mm-hmm. you know, how is that being addressed? Right. Um, you know, so there needs to be some accountability that, uh, in, in that particular right. situation. And speaking of accountability, I'll just point out before we wrap up that here in New Mexico, the New Mexico Nurses Association recently ushered through a bill that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham just signed. One of her first bills, I think she signed, was for safe harbor for nurses. It's mm-hmm. now a law in New Mexico. So when a nurse feels that his or her assignment is unsafe, they can invoke safe harbor and they are now mm-hmm. protected from being charged with patient abandonment or not accepting an assignment, etc. So We feel that this safe harbor bill could be a bellwether for the entire country. And we're really proud to have put that into place. Now we just have to make sure it gets operationalized. But we celebrated that. That was a real win this legislative session, I have to say. (laughs) That is a a great win. Yeah. And other places uh, across the country where such legislation is in, in place. I mean, you know, we all are caring about patient outcomes and being able to provide, you know, the best care possible. Yes, of course. And, uh, and of course, we also need to realize that what may be appropriate for you in New Mexico may not be appropriate for me in North Carolina. So this is why, uh, as I was stating, it's important that we look at it at, you know, the, the grassroots level, so mm-hmm. to speak, because obviously those nurses on, on the, the unit that I worked on in the, uh, you know, the burn ICU, they knew you know, what their strengths and weaknesses were far better than someone, you know, coming from the outside, you know, saying you must do this and must do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but ANA would not do anything that's going to, you know, reduce nursing uh, or nurses presence at the bedside. I mean, obviously we want to try to increase that as best as we, we uh-huh. possibly can to make sure that we do have optimal patient outcomes or Great. best outcomes. Right. Right. So I appreciate that position. And one final question before we wrap. What is your last and most important takeaway for a nurse listening right now? It's the tail end of Nurses Week 2019. We just finished Nurses Week. What would be your your message to that nurse who needs a little inspiration to keep going? What would you say to her right now? Or him. Or him. Or him. Right? That's true. <laughs> the, uh, the the first thing I would do is to say, uh, you know, thank you for your service, just as we do for our veterans who yes. have put their lives on the line. Uh, you know, nurses, you know, we put our lives on the line every day as well. Not only, you know, uh, you know, when we think about this as far as maybe the patients that we may encounter or you know, incivility or, or violence or things of that sort. But the, the mere fact to, to wake up every day and, you know, to make the decision to go to work and to make the decision to, uh, to to be a nurse, that within itself is is very challenging. So I would thank them for choosing the profession that uh, in my 40 plus years of being a nurse, I have never regretted one minute of being a nurse. Mm. The next thing that I would do is to encourage that person to be the best that they can be. You know, give it your all. And again, I go back to the question I ask myself every day at the end of the day, 
you know, did I make a difference today? And uh, if the answer to that is yes, then you have done your your job. And if it is if it is no, then perhaps you need to to look around for uh, not necessarily a change of profession, but maybe a change in in scenery. Yes. You know, you know there are areas where we can all get you know, a little burnt out, if you will, and uh, maybe look at what's next on the horizon or, or what's another area of, uh, of nursing that perhaps some of you want to go into. Thank you. That's a great message. I really appreciate that coming from you. You're a role model for me and I think for many other nurses as well. And it is such an honor to have you on the show and I can't thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you very much. And if I may just inject here, just to say, uh, you know, uh, thank you and uh, happy Nurses Week to all the, the nurses out there who do make a difference every day. Yeah, thank you. And when you're ready to run for Congress, hit me up and we will get started on that campaign. Okay. Okay. I'll take <laughs> well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Ernest Grant, the current president of the American Nurses Association. Remember that the show notes for this episode are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 209. You can see photos of Dr. Grant, his beautiful headshot. You can see his smiling face and this amazing man who is now heading up our premier nursing organization in the United States. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his team at thepodcastinggroup.com. And Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster. Please keep tuning in again and again as we continue to explore how to powerfully and consistently elevate your nursing career into your very own professional strategy sphere. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, and adios till next time from Nurse Keith in beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Dr. Ernest Grant bidding you adieu from beautiful downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. All right. Thank you, Dr. Grant, and we will see everyone on the flip side. <laughs>